house. This is Thank what you. I call a round of applause. Thank you all very much, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. Yeah. Um, my name is Erica Wagner, um, and I am so delighted to be here this evening um, to talk to Neil Gaiman and David Mitchell. I'm going to introduce them both, for all I know that they need no introduction. Um, and then the format of the evening is there'll be some chatting, there'll be some reading, they'll have questions for each other. It will be a great night. Neil Gaiman, yes? No, build up. Then. Build, yeah. no, 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 exactly, that's right. <laughs> It'll be terrible. You could, you could oh. have undersold it. <laughs> It Who will knows? be tolerable. Yes, water. Thank you. Would you like a glass of liquid nitrogen? Uh, yes, I would. Thank you very much. I'm going to do this in alphabetical order by last name. Neil Gaiman will eventually grow up and get a real job. Until then, he will keep making things up and writing them down. That's how, as many of you will know, he describes himself on Twitter, where he now has two and a quarter million followers. His achievements are so many and so varied. The heroic Sandman comics published by DC and one of the very few graphic novels, and we might talk about the comics graphic novels distinction later, to make it into the New York Times bestseller lists. His books for adults include The Ocean at the End of the Lane, Neverwhere, Stardust, the Hugo and Nebula award-winning American Gods, and Nancy Boys, and a couple of decades ago, he wrote Good Omens with the late, great Terry Pratchett, which subsequently became a wonderful radio series. Among his children's books are The Wolves in the Walls and The Terrifying Coraline, made into a really terrific animated movie a few years ago. I took my son to that, and he pretended not to be scared. But I still say to him, I'm your other mother. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you do it with the buttons? As long as you, you I, yeah, have to put the buttons. <laughs> I keep them in my, in my pocket. Um, the Graveyard Book, first published in 2008, has been particularly highly acclaimed. It made him the first author ever to win both the Newbery Medal and the Carnegie Medal with the same book, and its illustrations are by the brand new children's laureate, Chris Riddle. I could go on and on about his film and television work, about how he's used social media to promote the good causes he believes in and to celebrate literature and literacy. He's a man who, as far as I can tell, will break down any boundary set in front of him in the nicest possible way, of course. Oh, and a trigger warning. He's got a brand new book of stories out called Trigger Warning, published by Headline. <laughs> Me, right? <laughs> That's why they pay me so much. You're available for hire. I am. <laughs> David Mitchell, this one, is in, the <laughs> is in the course of creating an Uber novel, as he described it to me when he spoke last year in an interview for the New Statesman. From Ghostwritten, published in 1999, through Number Nine Dream, Cloud Atlas, Black Swan Green, The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoot, and now The Bone Clocks, his work manages to range widely through past, present, and future, and yet remain interconnected with itself. Granta picked Mitchell out as one of its best of young British novelists. Time Magazine, following the publication of Black Swan Green, chose him as the only literary novelist in their 2007 list of the 100 most influential people in the world. 
and how we laughed. <laughs> he came after Grammy winner John Mayer and just before Kate Moss. So make of that. Me and Kate, yeah. Who still influences me to this day. That's right. <laughs> so both these writers are creators of fully realized worlds. Ursula Le Guin, we might come back to her later too, called the bone clocks a whopper of a story, and so it is. He has a new novel coming in the autumn, Slade House, which grew out of a tale which made its first appearance on Twitter not long ago. Personally, I'm not surprised that Mitchell transformed his tweeting into another book. And I have 3,507 Twitter followers as well. Excellent. <laughs> I have more than you. <laughs> Oh, 35,000. Oh, oh, okay. I thought that was surprising. I don't Still. have more than you. <laughs> Readers are passionate about David Mitchell's books. His work has been translated into 30 languages across the globe. Cloud Atlas has sold over a million copies. The Bone Clocks, just published in paperback by Scepter, went straight to number three in the UK and US bestseller lists, and his devoted fans create charts of the way characters migrate from one novel to another. For Cloud Atlas alone, a sequence of interlinked stories ranging from the South Pacific in the 19th century to a post-apocalyptic future, they built wiki pages that are nearly novels in their own right. So I am really delighted to be here with you both. Oh, thank you, Eric. Um, and I think, I, you know, thinking about these two introductions and why I'm so happy um, to be here, one of the things that I admire so much about both of you is your ability to create story, incredibly compelling stories, story after story, sometimes smaller stories, sometimes smaller stories within large novels. How do those, how do you think about those stories? Before they're on paper, when they come on to paper, well, before they're on paper, they're normally not stories yet. They're, they're a bunch of things and people and ideas and bits of story where you know what's going to happen and then weird, misty areas that you know that the only way you're going to find out what's going to happen is actually going there with a torch and, uh, and maybe a stick and prodding your way through and and then by the time you get to the other side and look back, it's now a story and it's all obvious. But it, it doesn't, at least for me, begin as, ah, I know every beat of this story. It begins as, there is stuff in my head. I'm having what he's having. <laughs> uh, no, uh, uh, that's beautifully put. Uh, I think of them as little stem cells. That, uh, that have the potential to unfold origami-like uh, into narrative arcs. But uh, I don't know what they are until I start um, nurturing them and, and, and unfolding them. And I guess at this point, um, you also know that you can't uh, know how this idea will bridge that one until you get here and see how far it is and see what you have to build and how it can hook up. It, it's... The most frustrating thing that writers can do if actually cornered and forced to talk about stories that we haven't written yet, um, because we get to the point where we start going, and then stuff happens. 
and you can sort of talk about some of the stuff in the early days of the stem cell development. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, it's like telling some, and even if you think you know where the story is going to go, you can not only be wrong, um, but by the time you get where the story actually went, you can't remember where you thought it was going to go, and even your notes no longer make sense, because you're going, well, why would I, why would I have these two characters meeting? They never met, this is so peculiar, or, or whatever. Um, so it's a process of discovery and creation as you go. Yes, and a process, I think, also of lying to yourself. Um, I like to hear that. Because you, because very often when you get to the end, it's absolutely obvious that you couldn't have done anything but what you did, and that was obviously where the story went. And how could you not have known that? So on some weird level, you must have known. Um, but you're still doing... It's like for me, when I, I, I love Dickens. Um, I didn't love Dickens as a boy. I loved Dickens um, after I'd been writing Sandman. Oh, because I'd been writing serial <laughs> fiction. And now, picking up Dickens, I, I started going, well, I, I know what you're doing. This is, this is stuff where you know what's going to happen. This is stuff where you don't know what's going to happen and you're just busking it. <laughs> this is stuff where you're bringing something onto the stage that you know you will catch later on in the book, but it doesn't actually matter. So you've, you've tossed a ball into the air and you know it will come down and you know you will catch it, but you don't know what it is and all you need know is that at the point where you look up in the air and you raise your hand, a ball will fall in it. And it, it's, but it's a very weird process doing that. Um, it's interesting hearing you talk about that because uh, at the Sandman point in your career, you and Dickens were both magazine writers. Uh, and, and, and so you weren't just looking down on an entire narrative like a balloonist. You were actually lobbing balls to future... To future you. To future Neil Gaiman's. To, and, and, and use that. I, I, I wonder if we're sort of extending the Frank Zappa um, uh, quote about writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Uh, whether actually... <laughs> Talking about writing, I, I wonder if there's something inbuilt whereby this is about as convincing as we can sound, folks. This is as good as it gets, yes. really. But, but, but there, will be, there will still be ums and kind ofs, and we're basically just talking metaphors, and there were about six I counted in the last paragraph. Um, and I think that's because where it, it's like the same reason that writers... Um, tease mercilessly people who have the temerity to say, so where do you get your ideas from? Um, because we don't know, and it scares us. So we will... We will the, the only thing that really makes sense in the writing process is the point where you're sitting there and you're writing, and stuff is happening on the paper, and, and the moments for me that make it all worthwhile as a writer, are those peculiarly joyous moments where you didn't even know what was going to be happening on this page, and suddenly you built this beautiful edifice, 
and now it's obvious, and you're writing it, and you're writing fast because you have to keep up, and you're just the first reader. You're observing it. If I may agree, while slipping you a backhand compliment as well. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually the same for your readers. Um, when you read American Gods or the bucket... Uh, I said that in the green room, didn't I? The ocean at the end of the lane is supposed to be bucket at the end of the lane because there's an ocean in the bucket, bucket, of course. Sorry. Uh, it's one of these mental I blocks. I you wished you'd... The ocean at the, at the end, end of the, of the bucket would have been a better title. <laughs> I wish I had thought of the title, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, uh, if, if, if I had done, then that's what Cloud Atlas would have been named. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, um, for your readers, when you're working through the narratives, every twist, uh, I just don't see them coming. And then when you look back, um, it couldn't have gone any other way. I, I, I'm, ah, that's one of the things I love about your work, if I may say so, Mr Gaiman. Well, thank you, Mr the, the, the joy... Uh, one thing we should explain... Yes. Because um, it actually it actually does need explaining, is um, we have not actually managed to meet before, and our enormous failure to meet and talk, while huge admirers of each other's work, is why you're all here. Because, um, so they really just it, want to have this conversation. It and there have been some sort of sidelong. Oh, we've missed each other elegantly and brilliantly. By inches, by seconds, In by hay on why tent sheet widths. I, I, was, I was impressed to have cropped up in Crispin Hershey's uh, Twitter stream. Yeah, he saw you. But he I saw didn't. me. Yeah, yeah. But you missed me. Um, Crispin Hershey is a non existent person in one of my books, but it's a long story. <laughs> but, yeah. He's what? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I love Crispin Hershey. Um, particularly because he, he kind of haunts me a little bit. Um, not only did I manage to get... There is a scene in, in uh, Bone Clocks where Crispin essentially sneaks out for a cigarette and fails to get back in to the important backstage places at Hay on Y that he's meant to be. Um, and, and, of course, I managed at Hay on Y to sneak off to the toilet to be shown to a special backstage portaloo and then completely fail to make it back into the rest of hay. If I may say so, that's a very bird man and I hope you weren't in your underpants. Right? I, <laughs> it would have been brilliant if I was. <laughs> um, that would have set the... But also, I, I, I now, one of the, one of the things that I, I do as a... I'm not quite sure why I'm doing it, but it seems to be very nice, is I... I teach at Bard a couple of times a year. Yeah, I saw that and last week. And poor old Crispin is, is yeah. dying, he dies at Bard. Oops, shouldn't have given that away. <laughs> Sorry. Doesn't die, it's fine. Spoilers. It won't be for years. He hasn't even gone to Bard yet. I, I, I just read that a couple, of years, uh, a couple of weeks ago that you're teaching at Bard, and, uh, and I was afraid that you'd read that and think I was doing some sort of weird mind game. No, I, I just read it and went, oh, I, 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 I know all these places. I know all this stuff. It, it was peculiarly... Um, it's just like being followed around by somebody with a notebook. <laughs> well, little do you know, but <laughs> um, have you been up to the graveyard at the top of the hill? Yes. It's great, isn't it's it? It's wonderful, it's, that it's graveyard. A... Just next, next to the president's office. That's right, that's next right. The president's and, office. And, and, and sort of the... It's a college with its own graveyard, which, if you come to think of it, is very useful. <laughs> and, uh... It reminds me of the... Douglas Adams' joke about uh, if you actually are an immortal and you want to hide away and conceal the fact that you haven't died yet, 
then you become a professor at Oxford University, and <laughs> no one will ever notice. Nobody <laughs> would ever notice. Um, I suppose we should get back to the uh, evening, really, shouldn't we? Um, I'm, no, 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 I'm I, very... The glorious you know. thing about this is all digressions are content. Exactly. As like the Ronnie Corbett black chair story in The Two yes. Ronnies. It was an enormous Tristram Shandy-esque digression. <laughs> I, uh, that was one of my favourite points of the week. Now we're talking about The Two Ronnies. Help, Erica, help. But The Two Ronnies as Tristram race. Shandy-esque gi- digression, because, I mean, exactly. the entirety of Tristram Shandy yeah. is it's a glorious digression. digression. It's a story that never starts. It just backpedals. It's mad, isn't it? And uh, you go, yeah. yes. Have you ever wanted to write one of those? Um, you can do it in the 18th century if you're uh, an Enlightenment maverick, but can you imagine what our editors would do if we had an interest in that? Yours, well, I always thought it would be fun to write a story that was about two sentences and then put a footnote under those two sentences and say, there's probably a little more detail that you need to know. And then the rest, the entire novel would be would in be one giant footnote. I tell you what, have you read Pale Fire by Nabokov? Uh, that's, I mean, that's a fairly substantial poem, but it's basically footnote, isn't it? Um, about John Shade. It's very footnote-y. Yeah, yeah. But I would interrupt to ask you, David, because we're talking about making stories, connections between things. And we talked about this a little bit when we met. Did you always, because your work has this tremendous layering, characters brought in, back from other novels. How do you keep that? Do you keep it all in your head? Is it a surprise to you? No. Um, I'm actually a fake novelist. Uh, I, 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 it's a fairly recent and somewhat embarrassing discovery, and I hope nobody wants any of the small number of awards I've won back for confessing this. What makes you but, say uh, this? Because uh, I'm a novella writer, uh, and my optimum narrative form is about 80 to 130 pages. Okay. It's kind of like a nice a triple jump kind of a length. You kind of... It's, long enough to get up a bit of speed and then you can do your... It's the sort of 1,500 metres rather than that. And okay. land and make a nice little scorch mark to the sand and then stop. And you, it, 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 it's a form with a, a getaway car uh, that lets you leave the scene before the cops of monotony can come and cover you <laughs> and take you away. I'm on fire you tonight. You are on fire with the metaphors. Um, I'm, I'm stealing the title, The Cops of Monotony, for my band. <laughs> I start a band. We're, we're going to be the Cops of Monotony. We start. <laughs> we were talking about singing earlier, but you're not going no, to. Right? No, no, no. Uh, the last two times... She made me sing the first Oh, time. always blame the pregnant lady. I, th- yes. I, th- I think that's somewhat dishonorable, <laughs> Neil. I mean, honestly, but... And then the second time, I told the story of how the pregnant lady persuaded me to sing. <laughs> and now, in a very postmodern meta way, we're telling the story about telling the I'm story. Telling the story. <laughs> And um, he's getting away with not talking about yeah, how yeah, he's a liar, so... Um, no, um, so, I write novellas, and I also like the form because my limited brain can know where everything is in that. I know 130 pages, about 16, 15, 17 scenes. Uh, I know what they are, what they do, what the electronics of them are. Every scene is a kind of a conjunction in the flow. Every scene is an and, or a but, or an although, or a so, or a therefore, or a howsoever, depending on your register. Uh, I can't go bigger than that. I can't go 
large. What I can do, however, is assemble a group of novellas, and it's a very Brianino kind of noise going on when I go into the lower registers. Des could fix it. Uh, Les, that would be great. Um, but uh, I can do the windows and the wormholes and the tunnels and the footbridges between the narrative. So it looks as if I've, ha I've handed in this sort of Sir Christopher Wren-sized thing, but it's actually just But until this Lego moment, blocks. nobody knew. It's, it's Duplo blocks, actually, <laughs> rather than Lego. Um, <laughs> and um, so that's within a single book. Um, referring more directly to your question in terms of the larger project, which is each book is a chapter in a larger book while also being a standalone thing of its own right that you can read and enjoy without ever having read anything else I've written. Um, that's actually a case of, let's go back into metaphor again, it's a case of unemployed characters uh, and job seekers centers. Uh, I write a book, I wonder if, I wonder if there's anyone in-house that I can advertise this job to. Uh, I think if there's someone available, someone whose chronology fits, someone who could bring something, someone who maybe I didn't define too well the first time around, that, 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 that has some sort of blank Scrabble tiles left uh, on the rack. Uh, and I've been I, lo I love Hugo Lamb coming you out. Read song yes. yes. Oh, bless you. Bless and, you. But watching him coming out and then going, ah, now with what we know about him from here, he is because we know he's a bastard. Yeah, yeah. Going, oh, his, his strokes of magical luck playing games earlier on are explained. Um, I, of course, didn't know he'd ever be appearing again after finishing Black Swan Green. Uh, I, I'm starting to plan forward a little bit with them now, but, um, but, but only a few. And the, um, Do you feel that they have sort of enough definition, maybe, to sort of stand on and then see how they would? Um, I, some years ago, he probably doesn't remember this, but I... I, I talked about the idea of a serial reincarnatee a character who lives a life, uh, has no superpowers at all other than dies, and then 49 days later wakes up in the body of a young boy or girl who has just died. The soul's vacated the body and Marinus, for it is he or she of whom I speak, uh, re-enters the new body and then lives that life. So it's sort of a, a time lord without a TARDIS uh, and maybe we'll come on to this subject later. Indeed. Um, I have a Doctor Who t-shirt. I really wanted to kind of wear it and then at this point draws <laughs> 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 me uh, bottled out at the last minute. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, so and my brother really, really liked that idea. Uh, and he said, yeah, you've got to do that. You've got to do that. So uh, I wrote him into uh, Thousand Autumns um, of Jacob de Zoot, and um, in that, I, I, I didn't want that to sort of be diverted into that story because it's such a sort of magnetic idea, but he is very sympathetic to women and slaves, and we find out in the bone clocks when he's a she, that's because he slash she has been women and slaves often in previous incarnations right. going back to the fifth century. And if that doesn't sound like uh, one of Neil's throwaway ideas for the Sandman, I don't know what does. And I read Sandman <laughs> earlier this year and thought, he's just going to murder me. He's going to say... What ideas have you had that aren't mine originally? But, uh... no, I, I, I love the fact that there's this sort of, you know, it, particularly the bone clocks felt to me like absolute recognition. Um, it, was, it was like, oh, you're doing that thing that I do. This is great. 
oh, and it, it felt like being part of a part of a club. Oh, um, I'm in Neil you know. Gaiman's club, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you, thank you for saying that. Um, you do think about the psychology of immortality really well, uh, and I sort of, if I had read Sandman a year earlier, boy, it would have been a, a, I would have been a much more intimate member of your club than uh, I presently am. Um, just what that does to your head, what that does to your capacity for human relationships. Uh, the guy that Sandman gives the gift, is it Ned? Yep, it, it's, it's, it's Hob Gadling, who he gets to meet in the Hob. pub once every hundred years. Yeah. And, uh, that's, and you just sort of get to favorite, watch that. That's one of my favorite episodes of the Sandman. That's just that brilliant. One, it, it was really interesting, because when I was writing, the, the joy for me of Sandman um, was just being able to write anything. I created this storyline I decided that Morpheus' dream, the Sandman, was as old as the universe, because I thought that gives me all the stories, all, all of time for stories. And that was, you were saying the thing about the, the being reincarnated um, over and over. Hobbes' story, in a weird way, was the oldest thing, or the second oldest story I had floating around in my head. Really? Um, and it wasn't a story, it was just, I thought, I, want, I, I was about 16, and I thought, I should write about two people who meet in a pub every hundred years. Wow. And I didn't know who they were or why. And then I was writing Sandman, it's like, I can do that, that's, that's my story. You meet every hundred years. And suddenly history got interesting. I, yeah. was, I was not somebody, I'd been somebody who was I don't know if it was being taught history wrong or, or just I kind of liked history. You know, I liked 1066 and all that. I didn't mind the occasional historical novel, but it wasn't my place. And then suddenly I got to write that story and was reading English history, trying to figure out what was different between 1289 and 1389, and what would be different in 1489, what was happening in 1589 that I could use, and where, and all of a sudden history became fascinating, it became a territory that I could walk in. Isn't it interesting how um, the dullest, least engaging um, element on the periodic table of the human condition, once you think, hang on, I need this for a novel, uh, suddenly, it becomes the most fascinating thing you've ever you've, you've, you've ever thought about or looked into. Uh, it's almost as if, if you sort of if, if 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 I sort of ever really wanted to properly learn a Chinese or something, I'd, I'd almost just write a book about China just so that would then make the Chinese language fascinating. Yes, uh, it, it's suddenly things that were incredibly boring, things that were revolting. I remember needing to write an autopsy in American Gods. And, you know, high on the list of things I never wanted to go to was an autopsy. Um, obviously my own, but other people's. Um, and suddenly I'm finding out everything I can about autopsies and I'm on the phone to my doctor, getting him to describe bit by bit every detail and I'm absolutely fascinated, and I'm squeamish, I go green, I, I'm, I'm rubbish, except that I'm excited, and I need to know, and I'm asking all these questions, and 
Okay, so now you put all, that's what you've got in the bucket. This is what you got over there. Okay, so then, then what do you do? And he said, like, I'm putting them back in. Well, what order do you put them back in? The same order I took them out in, only reverse. <laughs> Why? Because otherwise they don't fit. Oh, of course. <laughs> and I'm, But it is, it's, it's, it suddenly becomes these magic obsessions. But they work the other way around too, because sometimes you can find yourself with an obsession and you don't know what it is, other than you are buying every book you can find about Victorian Punch and Judy shows, or, or whatever. Something suddenly becomes horribly interesting. And then you kind of hope that maybe you're going to turn it into a novel or a story at some point, because otherwise you've just wasted two years of your life Reading learning about, about Punch and, and Punch Judy. Judy shows. <laughs> at that point, because we have some readings this evening, um, can I ask you, Neil, to start us with a little reading? Well, I, w I was asked to do some very short readings. So I thought, well, each of my short story collections has short things in it. Um, so I thought I would begin with the shortest short story I've ever written, because, which is kind of different to most readings, where people sit there and they go, is it over yet? <laughs> um, this is a hundred-word short story, except that it wasn't a hundred-word short story, because I couldn't fit it into a hundred words. It was 102 words, so I made the first two words the beginning of the story. It's called Nicholas Was. <laughs> Nicholas was older than sin, and his beard could grow no whiter. He wanted to die. The dwarfish natives of the Arctic caverns did not speak his language, but conversed in their own twittering tongue, conducted incomprehensible rituals when they were not actually working in the factories. Once every year, they forced him, sobbing and protesting, into endless night. During the journey, he would stand near every child in the world, leave one of the dwarves' invisible gifts by its bedside. The children slept, frozen into time. He envied Prometheus and Loki, Sisyphus and Judas. His punishment was harsher. Ho, ho, ho. Um, now, the other thing we have are some questions uh, from the audience, which you emailed in, and we've picked a few of those. So, some of them are for either Neil or David, but some are for both. So we're going to start with a both question uh, from Tom McClelland, who asks, each of you adopt an extraordinarily wide range of voices in your writings. Which voice, if any, feels closest to your own? Deep breath. Well, <laughs> for me, the, the, a lot of the joy of writing is getting to do the ventriloquism thing of, of playing a character, of picking a time period and writing using that vocabulary as if you're writing somebody else. And I always feel that when I'm writing 
for want of a better word, me characters, I'm faking it. Um, because there is this awful disingenuousness of, um, I'm not even telling you a story. This is just a true thing that happened. And it's awful and it's, it's, it's mean because people believe it. And you're doing the equivalent of saying, here, hold my hand, I'm your friend. We're just gonna wander off into this dark wood and we'll be fine because I'm with you and I'm not gonna run away halfway through and leave you stumbling around in the darkness on your own. And then you walk with them into the dark wood and you let go of their hand and you leave them stumbling around in the darkness all on their own um, while going ha 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 because <laughs> you can. Uh, so, I, I, so I always feel faintly, um, you know, the question of which voices are closest to your own. Well, Ocean at the End of the Lane, for example, is very me. But it's not. It's evil and it's tricky. It just looks like me on the surface. It has bear traps. If you think that uh, that must therefore be one of your l less successful books, just to take that theory on, then I would have to... S I, th I think I'd speak for a lot of people here when I'd say that really isn't how your readers see it. Well, it's, uh, it's not even a matter of success, it's a matter of the question of which voice is closest to your own. And Because I go, well, I don't know that there is any particular advantage to a voice that's closest to your own, except to uh, lull your reader into a false sense of security and, and to make them think that you're being really, really honest with them. Oh, but your readers love it when you do that, when you leave them in the woods and just the last thing they hear of you is a ho, ho, ho. <laughs> um, I will leave you somewhere in the woods. Um, I'd give a tricksy answer along the lines of um, all, some, and none. Um, all because how could you write a character that doesn't have any of the DNA of your personality in it? Um, none because um, they are transparently fictional creations in a work of fiction with that disclaimer about all persons living and dead, doddy, doddy, don, please don't sue me, at the end of it, <laughs> in the beginning. Uh, and then some because they, perhaps there's not one reason why a character resembles you. Maybe they resemble you for different reasons. So maybe Crisp in Hershey, my, 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 my awful asshole. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I said that word in front of my 12 year old niece. Sorry, Rubes, you mustn't say that language. Um, um, this, this, this very unpleasant middle age novelist, white English novelist of fading powers with one hit in the background that's now a distant memory. I uh, don't know where I got that from. Um, but he's kind of the, he's me because he's the depository of my insecurities and he, he, he is how I would be if I didn't have the wife and kids to ground me when I get back from an event like this and say, there's 900 people in Islington. I said, yeah, but the wheelie bin still needs taking out, so go on, go on. Uh, uh, and and, and it's, that's really important. Um, so the different characters are close for different reasons. I, I, just going in terms of affection, and I'd like to hear your answer here. If, if, if there's a character that, that, that you feel kind of more affection to, then there's a... Vanity publisher in a book I did called Cloud Atlas called 
Timothy Cavendish that I feel a great affection for. And now when I think of him, I can only see Jim Broadbent. Yes. But that's okay, because Jim Broadbent's great. <laughs> Everybody should things. be played by Jim Broadbent that's anyway. Right. Um, affection. Affection. Oh, that's a really interesting one, because um, for me, the characters I tend to feel the most affection for in a weird way are appalling. Um, I love the narrator. There's the narrator of a short story um, called A Study in Emerald, who we think may be Watson, but actually isn't in a weird mashup of, of the Victorian era with, with Cthulhu and H.P. Lovecraft. And I, I loved writing him. I just, I keep thinking I should go back because there's something, he was just incredibly sweet and, 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 an absolute delight to write. I love, um, I love Wednesday in American Gods, but never got to really write anything from his point of view, which was probably good, because he's uh, a little bit too monstrous. I, I think, I don't know, it, it, you have to get, I think it's a first person thing though, in some ways the affection, because you get to go and live Within them. You, you live in them, and you get to sort of enjoy the feeling of saying what they would say as opposed to what you would say. There's a, there's a character in a book that I've not yet written who I'm enormously fond of. Um, oh, God, Jenny, you can't just say that. I, oh, I, 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 a lady <laughs> named Jenny Curtin um, in a, a novel called... Um, it probably called Wall which would be a sort of a sequel to Stardust, but set now. Um, and uh, she's, she's lovely. She's really nice. I'm so looking forward to, to writing her and doing stuff from her point of view. And she's actually, she's kind of weird because she sneaks around the back in lots of my stories. So she's the line that you can use to draw. Um, I think you can... You can definitely draw a line between Stardust and American Gods with her because there are people in American Gods reading Jenny Curtin novels. Um, but she's just sort of, she's waiting. waiting for you. She's still waiting in the wings, checking her watch from time to time and going, what's he doing now? Is he doing that novel? No. No. I'll be back there if anybody wants me. Um, maybe, David, would you read for us? Mm, sure. Now? Um, if... Neil's reading was kind of the pims on the lawn. Could I be the uh, garlic bread in the salad before going you, back you to may, Neil? Um, Mr. Metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I don't have any micro stories. Sorry, I wish I did. Uh, it did remind me of that thing, um, that six-word story of Hemingway's about a. Oh yes. For Which sale. Is a myth. Yes, yes. I just wrote a piece about microstories, and people have traced back where he never wrote it. But it's for sale, baby shoes, never worn. But it wasn't him. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. That's right. There's this, is it called the Friday Project? Writers going to schools and encouraging, you might have done this, and encouraging kids, especially in deprived areas, uh, I, I, I'm really embarrassed. I did um, uh, an event for them once. If, if anyone knows it, help. First story. First story, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, and 
so every Friday they send you, that's why I thought it was a Friday project, but uh, first story, a very worthy literacy charity, and if you're on their email list, they send you every Friday one little piece of fiction from one of the, one of the schools, and in honour of that story, uh, of, of the short Hemingway micro story that Hemingway never actually wrote, uh, some kids somewhere wrote, um, uh, for sale, complete Hemingway, never read. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best laugh I'll get all evening. It wasn't even my line. <laughs> uh, so, um, what I wanted to say is I'm putting all my three readings together and then we'll, and we'll then clear the floor for Neil to do his remaining two. Uh, please think of me as a 15-year-old teenage punkette in 1984 who has run away from home. And that's all you need to know. By three o'clock, my whole head's parched, not just my mouth. I've never walked so far in my life, I reckon. There's no sign of a shop or even a house where I can ask for a glass of water. Then I notice a small woman fishing off the end of a jetty thing, like she's sort of sketched into the corner where nobody will spot her. She's a long stone throw away, but I see her fill a cup from a flask. I'd never normally do this, but I'm so thirsty that I walk down the embankment and along the jetty up to her, clomping my feet on the old wooden plank so as not to scare her. Excuse me, but could you spare a drop of that water, please? She doesn't even look round. Cold tea, do you? Her croaky voice sounds from somewhere hot. Oh, that'd be great, thanks. I'm not fussy. Help yourself, then, if you're not fussy. So I fill the cup, not thinking about germs or anything. It's not normal tea, but it's the most refreshing thing I've ever drunk, and I let the liquid swoosh all round my mouth. Now I look at her properly for the first time. Sort of elephanty eyes in a wrinkled old face with short grey hair, a grubby safari shirt and a leathery wide-brimmed hat that looks about 100 years old. Is it good? She asks. Yeah, I say, it was. It tastes a bit like grass. Green tea. Lucky you're not fussy. I ask, since when's tea been green? Since bushes made their leaves that colour. <laughs> There's a splish of a fish. I see where it was, but not where it is. So have you caught much today? A pause. Five perch, one trout. A slow afternoon. I don't see a bucket or anything. So where are they? A bead lands on the brim of her hat. I let them go. If you don't want the fish, then why'd you catch them? For the quality of the conversation, I look around, a footpath, a brambly field, a scrubby wood and a choked up track. She must be taking the piss. There's nobody here. The bee is happy where it is, even when the woman stirs herself to reel in the line. I stand off to one side as she checks the bait still secure on the hook. Drips of water splash the thirsty planks of the jetty. The river slurps at the shore and sloshes round the wooden pillar things. Still seated, and with an expert flick of the wrist, the old woman sends the lead weight loopy-looping away. The reel makes its zithery noise, and the weight lands in the water where it was before. 
circles float outwards, dead calm. And then she does something really weird. She takes out a stick of chalk from her pocket and writes on a plank by her foot the word, my. On the next plank along, she writes, long. Then on the next plank, it's the word, name. Then the old woman puts her chalk away and goes back to her fishing. I wait for her to explain, but she doesn't. So, what's all that about? What's what about? What you just wrote. Their instructions. Instructions for who? For someone many years from now. But it's chalk, it'll wash off. From the jetty, yes, but not from your memory. Okay, so she's mad as a sack of ferrets. <laughs> Only, I don't tell her so, because I'd like more of that green tea. Oh, finish the tea if you want, she says. You won't find a shop until you and the, the boy arrive at All Hallows on Sea. Thanks a lot. I fill up the cup. Be sure, this is the last of it. One good turn deserves another. She turns a crafty sniper's eye on me. I may need asylum. Asylum? She needs a mental asylum. How do you mean? Refuge, a bolt hole. If the first mission fails, as I fear it must. God, crazy people are hard work. Look, <laughs> I'm 15. I don't have an, an asylum or a bolt hole. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. You're ideal. You're unexpected. My tea for your asylum. Do we have a deal? Dad says the best way to handle drunks is to humour them and then dump them. And maybe the doolally are a bit like drunks. You never really sober up. Okay, it's a deal. She nods and I drink until the sun's a pale glow through the thin bottom of the plastic. The old bat's gazing away again. Thank you, Holly. So I thank her back and return to dry land. Then I turn round and go back up to her. Excuse me, but how do you know my name? She doesn't turn round. And by what name was I baptised? This is a bit of a stupid game. You're Esther Little. And how do you know my name? Because well, you just told me. Did she? She must have. That's settled then. And those were Esther Little's final words. Part of this evening was for um, the two of you to prepare questions for each other for this momentous first meeting of minds. <laughs> You're laughing. <laughs> it sounds now it's, you hardly need this clearly because I would if I didn't know it was your first meeting I would never guess. But so perhaps one of you would like to pull one of these questions Shall out we? of the hat. Scissors, paper, stone for it, and whoever wins asks the first question. Yes. So okay. Or, sh or should it be whoever loses asks the first question? Fine. Okay. Scissors, paper, stone. Oh. Ah. I lost. <laughs> oh, classy. That's 
that's a difference between Mr. Gaiman, ladies and gentlemen. I just thought I'd have it. It's a scrappy note in my head. So, actually, I have to say this. There's a hair just poking out of here. Could I keep it like, <laughs> like Gimli keeping Galadriel's golden hair? I'll set it in a bowl of imperishable crystal. <laughs> I just love the noise my wife just made. <laughs> you can see her going, clean them off. <laughs> uh, if our wives were here, boy, they'd have a different evening, wouldn't they? <laughs> so, I was in Vancouver um, in February talking with, or March, talking with William Gibson. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and he was saying that he'd been to one of your events out there and... Uh, There's a nice man. A wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, listen to you reading some of the last chapter of The Bone Clocks there. Some years ago, yeah. And uh, the, the, the last chapter for me was, or the last sequence in there, um, is one I cannot get out of my head. Thank you. I find it, it, it sort of... So my question is, do you fear the future? Um, on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, I do very much. <laughs> that leaves Tuesdays, Thursdays and the weekend to sort of get over it. Uh, three against four. It's, it's, it, it's, it's just about that. Uh, what I am afraid of is that we have built a civilization that allows us to have the living standards of gods compared to most human beings who have ever existed, ever. All powered by oil. Uh, I flew over from Cork this morning because of oil. We wear clothes made in factories powered by indentured labour and oil. They're brought to us from China and Bangladesh and Indonesia, right? Ever in container ships powered by oil. The food that's in our stomachs right now is probably grown using mechanised agriculture oil, unless we eat very organically and locally indeed. Um, that food is distributed to our supermarkets by oil. There's seven billion of us. Increasingly, more and more of us need more and more oil. And there's not a lot left. Uh, and this does alarm me very much, because renewable energy can do some things, it can make lights shine, it can banish the night, which, which our great, 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 great um, grandfather's going back couldn't do um, without fire, but, but it can't shift stuff, it can't move stuff. Uh, I don't think it can support seven billion of us. Uh, and then the burning of this oil affects the life support machine that supports homo that supports homo sapiens and makes us a viable species. Um, I do fear that in 30 or 40 years, once several more Hurricane Katrinas have hit New York and have hit London and have hit most of the world's metropolises, in fact, um, they may no longer be viable metropolises. I can't say that, I'm not even drunk, but you know what I mean, large, <laughs> large cities. Uh, so these do make me worry. Um, how about you? <laughs> um, I, I like being optimistic. I like living in a world in which I go, we're very clever, we will figure something out. Um, except that I look around 
watching people not being clever, not figuring something out, and very often doing the equivalent of stumbling on into disaster even when we know that there is a potential disaster, which leaves me almost baffled. Um, I'm going, but we're smart. We're really clever. We've got us, ourselves to this fantastic place where we are. Uh, you know, there, there, there's, there's almost nothing that I can think of that the hero of a fairy tale or the heroine of a fairy tale wouldn't have gone and seen a wizard do that we don't take for granted. Um, we, we have all these magical things that allow us to speak to people a long way away and... Skype. And I never get over Skype. That just feels like <laughs> science fiction. Skype yeah. is definitely part of the future. Um, but then most apps now feel like the future. I go, this... I can, I can... I have the power of a god here. <laughs> if I hadn't forgotten to recharge it, I would have the power <laughs> of a god. Um, but it, it, it's also the flip side of that, which is going and what am I charging it with? And uh, where is this power coming from? And so I'm, I, I think, which is why the final sequence in the Bone Clocks, I found it genuinely chilling. Um, and going, and in a weird way, the people here are obviously having it better than most of the other people in Western Europe. You, you know, we've actually, we're on the people who are doing pretty well. Uh, the rest of Ireland is having it rougher. They're probably having a terrible time in Germany, but, you know, the Scandinavians are all right. You have a soft spot for the Scandinavians. Iceland, in particular. Yes. I, I don't know what's gone, in, uh, what's gone on in Scandinavia, but uh, Iceland's protected by, by, by the water, yeah. Uh, it, it, it certainly is a wise person who can, dis who can distinguish optimism from ostrichism. Yes. Uh, and I don't think I can always... And, and you're right, we are ingenious at apps, but I can't avoid business speak, sorry. Putting into place the measures that would prevent tens of thousands of people annually risking their lives, risking everything to get a slot on a leaky boat to leave North Africa. Uh, we don't seem to have that cracked very well, do we? I, I was talking to um, the people from uh, the United Nations Refugee Agency just before I came in here, and they were saying that we are now heading for over... There are over 60 million refugees in the world, which is the equivalent of what would happen if we woke up and somebody said, OK, uh, the UK is sinking, we all have a day to get off, and now we have to go and find somewhere to live. Uh, there's no more UK, and it's just gone. And 60 million people wandering around going, excuse me, would you mind putting me up? And I can imagine them, uh, you know, the leaky boats suddenly become incredibly attractive. 60 million people, that's more people that are refugees than I think at any other time in human history right now. The Syrians, Africans, it's... Anyway, there we go. Sorry. <laughs> Meant to stick to literature. Wandered now, off the subject your, there. How about you? Doesn't count as a question. <laughs> uh, so. so let's have one of your. <laughs> um, well, that was um, uh, sort of uh, a very necessary issue and a weighty um, 
discussion we just a micro discussion we just had. So I'll go to the other end of the scale um, and ask you something completely trivial, if I may. Um, this is actually a question I was asked uh, at a school for the deaf in Warsaw on one of the British Council trips that uh, they, uh, they sponsored. So it was it translated twice, once from sign language into Polish, once from Polish into English. And I got the sense as it was being translated, there were, is this really a suitable question for him? Uh, uh, do we really want to ask him this? So, which was, come on, what is it, what is it, what is it? Uh, but it, it's just one of the most beautiful, entish questions I've ever been asked. And it's this, uh, if you could be a sentient tree, or a sentient species of tree, which tree would you like to be? <laughs> and, 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 and you must admit, you've never been asked this. I've never been asked no. this before. That's what I wanted. Kids, kids are the best. Kid, kid questions are the best. Um, just at the point where you think you've been asked everything, you know, you, you go and you talk to a school, and all the hands go up and they ask questions, and you've answered everything, and then a final hand goes up and you say yes. And you're, and you're asked, have you ever burped so hard it hurts? <laughs> um, and you're just like, I love kids. Um, I, I would... I once had, do ants have headaches? <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't make it up, would you? But go on, sorry, you weren't sure. Um, or, or, or a tree would be. If, if, if I had to be a tree, um, which actually would be a rather nice, I would like to be a giant redwood. But I would like to be a giant redwood not for the obvious reason, which is you get to be absolutely enormous and you get to live for thousands upon thousands of years. I'd like to be a giant redwood because um, Amanda and I went to see our friend Zoe Keating in Northern California a while ago. And she lived in something that was once a redwood forest, and they cut the redwood forest down um, to, to build things in San Francisco that then burned down, that then necessitated cutting down more redwoods. Um, but where she was, she was surrounded by 200-foot-high redwoods. And I said, so they've been growing again? And she said, well... When you've got the root system of a giant redwood tree and you chop the redwood down, it just puts up another shoot. And I thought, I want to be that. <laughs> I, want, I want to be a 200-foot-high shoot. That's a great answer, thank you. Uh, I am satisfied. I declare myself satisfied, Mr. Gaiman. Can we have another one of your mini-readings? Another mini-reading. Okay. Uh, This is kind of cheating, because it's a poem. But I love the idea of reading it in Union Chapel, because this is such a great place to read anything. It's called The Day the Sources Came. That day, the sources landed. Hundreds of them, golden, silent, coming down from the sky like great snowflakes. And the people of Earth stood and stared as they descended, waiting dry-mouthed to find what waited inside for us, and none of us knowing if we would be here tomorrow. But you didn't notice it, because that day, the day the sources came, by some coincidence was the day that the graves gave up their dead, 
and the zombies pushed up through soft earth or erupted, shambling and dull-eyed, unstoppable, came towards us, the living, and we screamed and ran. But you did not notice this because on the saucer day, which was the zombie day, it was Ragnarok also. And the television screens showed us a ship built of dead men's nails, a serpent, a wolf, all bigger than the mind could hold. And the cameraman could not get far enough away. And then the gods came out. But you did not see them coming. Because on the saucer zombie battle in God's day, the floodgate broke. And each of us was engulfed by genies and sprites offering us wishes and wonders and eternities and charm and cleverness and true brave hearts and pots of gold while giants FIFO fummed across the land and killer bees. But you had no idea of any of this because that day, the saucer day, the zombie day, the Ragnarok and fairies day, the day the great winds came and snows and the cities turned to crystal, the day all plants died, plastics dissolved, the day the computers turned, the screens telling us we would obey, the day angels drunk and muddled stumbled from the bars and all the bells of London were sounded, the day animals spoke to us in Assyrian, the Yeti day, the fluttering capes and arrival of the time machine day, you didn't notice any of this because you were sitting in your room, not doing anything, not even reading, not really, just looking at your telephone, wondering if I was going to call. Um, all those worlds in that poem, bring me to um, the G question, the question of genre, mm -hmm. which, of course, Neil, you were just discussing with Kazuo Ishiguro in the New Statesman recently. Um, but I wonder whether that's something that you both ever think about. Is it just to do with marketing? Is it something that Beowulf is not described as a piece of genre writing, um, but we seem peculiarly obsessed now with putting things in their boxes. I wonder why One of the things I is. love about David is, is sort of leaping out of the boxes or, or staying in the boxes and then grabbing other boxes and pulling them back into the box, which I think is, is wonderful. I, the, the, um, I think that fundamentally genre is a way of guiding people around a bookshop. Um, it's just, you know, it's the notices that tell you where in a bookshop you're most likely to find the thing that you want, or possibly the notices that tell you to stay away from places where you're not looking for um, something. And I think it's fundamentally a lie and fundamentally irrelevant because it's going to guide you away from things that you would like, did you but know it. Um, and genre lies to you. Um, Joe Hill, who is a marvelous writer and somebody who is perfectly capable of, of tromping down the walls of genre, um, sent me Cloud Atlas and sent it to me just with a note. 
saying, you know, you have to read this. And for me, what was so much fun with that was what I, what I had believed as a young writer was that what was going to become most important and most interesting um, by the end of the 20th century was going to be confluence, was things flowing together, the idea that nobody who has grown up loving Doctor Who is ever going to be entirely comfortable writing novels that are only mimetic, realistic fictions set in a now because you know you can do other things, and so why wouldn't you want to? Um, the, the joy of getting to play God as a writer is a, a, a sort of thing where you're going, well, God gets to do all this stuff. Why can't I? I don't think God is at all satisfied with just realistic fiction. You know? <laughs> she gets to do space opera and horror as well, and pornography. <laughs> so... Why can't we? And your budget as a writer is limitless. Your budget as a writer is, is limited. Well, it's not limitless. It's the cost of ink and paper. Limitless, basically. <laughs> um, I agree with Neil's paradigm that genre should just be a system of signposts. Uh, that's what it should be. People get so upset about it. And... I get exasperated with how exasperated people get about genre. Uh, it, it, surely all that matters is, is this damn book any good or not? Who cares if it has a dragon in it, Mr. Ishiguro? That's a wonderful book. What? Why, why get upset about... I, I just, I just didn't... Somebody put a dragon in my novel. Uh, <laughs> help. He put a dragon in his novel. It's a, it works really well. Uh, and why anyone would want to open fire on him or, or, or have a Bob Dylan at Newport Judas kind of moment? Uh, a, he can do what he wants as, as, as long as the book works. Well, he can do what he wants and the book be a stinker, but it's not. It's great. Um, so I will now calm down. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I get exasperated by the debate. It, 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 we shouldn't even be talking about it in the first place. I feel genre is, a, for me, it's a beautiful playground. It's a set of colours that are in our paint box. Why confine one novel to one genre? Why not? Um, they are maybe representative of the ways we experience the world. There are times where we see it as pastiche and satire and a sort of carry-on film. There are times we experience it as, uh, as something much more tragic. Uh, there's times when we flip open our laptops and speak to people in Japan in real time. And I can see, I did this last weekend, I can, it's really hot in Hiroshima, I can see the beads of sweat on my friends' faces in Hiroshima. The resolution's that good. So there are times when life feels rather science fiction-y. Um, sometimes usually Tuesdays, I have rather hard-boiled detective kind of days where, where, where things just sort of seem grey and quippy and everyone's cheekbones are a little bit sharper than they normally are. Uh, there are times, especially when you're in the first 
six months of being in love where all these weird chemicals and drugs are going around your body and life feels like this mad, misty, love-suffused romantic comedy and it's just beautiful and you're drunk on it. Um, and genre is a gift to artists to reproduce those states. Why chop off your own limbs by saying, no, no, I'm a serious literary writer. I've been shortlisted for Booker. I'm not going to put any fantasy in my novel. Uh, the, um, <laughs> that wasn't mine. <laughs> but, oh, sorry, Anika, you wouldn't judge it. Sorry, never mind. I, I, I just didn't mean to go there, but sorry. <laughs> God, digging into Fair a enough. hole deeper. deeper. Uh, but, but, um, um, no, sorry, that wasn't planned. It really wasn't. <laughs> that was a Crispin Hershey moment. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, I think that's pretty much all I wanted to say. Kind of, really, but why not? But, I mean, real, real, life, real life is, is awful at staying in genre boundaries. I, um, that's the, the quote of the night, Neil. <laughs> I will take that with me. The best slapstick I have ever seen. I was on my way to a funeral. And... <laughs> was on a plane and watched the uh, flight attendant stand up, bump into the overhead thing, everything fell down, and it just kept falling, and it was hilarious. And I was on my way to a funeral and going, no, you don't do this. You stay serious, because you have to stay serious, but real life is, is rubbish at staying in genre. And, and look at these sort of... These, so the top ten books I love. I mean, there's Bleak House, which has grotesque supernatural. It's got spontaneous. Best spontaneous, spontaneous human combustion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the Master and Margarita. You know, it, it, that combines. Uh, you've got beautiful. biblical history. You've got biblical retellings. You have uh, contemporary parody. Stalinist politics. Stalinist politics and a cat with a machine gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, it, and, and it's brilliant. And yeah. if, 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 if it's good enough for uh, Bulgakov and Margaret Atwood, uh, and we could come up with a long list of now Kazuo Ishiguro, then it's good enough for us. It's good enough for me. Fair so. enough. Um, I'm going to bring in another question uh, from the audience now, which is from, uh, for both of you, which was from Laura Van Rensburg, who asks, how does it feel to hand over your baby, a.k.a. story, over to be translated to the big or small screen and give someone else creative power over your own work? Well, I, about five minutes before everybody was let in, uh, it was actually announced on Twitter that the American Gods TV series in America has been green-lighted. So, um, I am... So I think I can say confidently, absolutely terrifying. Um, and exciting. I mean, it's always, it, it, it's, you don't know what you're going to get. I, um, I, you always have to take a step back because unless you're actually directing it, writing it, producing it, making everything that you're seeing, you can't control it. And you have to be willing not to control, you have to also try and find the best people you possibly can, find people you like, find people you trust, find people who are enthused and let them, let them do what they do. 
and hope they're going to ask you for advice. You, you don't want to be sort of leaning over their shoulders going, yeah, not like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't do that. Um, but you know you're going to anyway, and so you want to be as happy as possible when you're eating your popcorn or, I mean, you know, I, I love Coraline, for example. I think that Henry Selick made a, a wonderful film, but my process of being involved with that consisted of, one, pick Henry Selick. <laughs> Two, send him a copy of Coraline before it was published saying, I love what you do, I think you should make this. Three, read his first script, say, it's very good, but it's actually too much like the novel, I think you need to own this. Um, and four, let him get on with it. That was basically my, my process. But you, I, I, I remember meeting Lana Wachowski, um, and I love Lana, and, and she was so excited about the fact that you were part of the Cloud Atlas team. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, yes. She may have been um, lying, but she was, <laughs> but she was absolutely uh, thrilled. That, you know, she was saying, oh, we've got David, David's part of the team. Uh, I was uh, honoured to be so. Uh, I, uh, I'm, just, I'm, I'm still thinking about um, American Gods. May I ask how many episodes it'll be? <laughs> so, sorry. Uh, <laughs> you uh, may. But, but the, I know you want to know as well. The current plan is that they have three seasons using the novel. Oh, wow. And they, are, they have their fingers crossed, and they made me tell them what was in the next American Gods book, just in case I die. <laughs> Suddenly. Oh, uh, you know, the one that yeah. I haven't written yet, but it's like, okay, well, if in case I die, this is what's going to happen. They're like, oh, good. So, um, That's you know. actually uh, the, the contracts you get from the film companies. Those are some of the few rare the contracts, it's actually worth reading yourself really closely. <laughs> uh, one I had to sign is you can't slag the picture off yep. or the lawyers will come and get you. Uh, but, um, oh, that's great. So, that's, so we're looking about 27 hours at least, and if it's not yeah, hours. It will, it will keep going for a long time. Wonderful. Um, well, yeah, I, had, I, I remember having that. Um, I, I wasn't, I am legally still not allowed... It's weird. I, I can say rude things about Caroline if I want to, which I don't. I could say rude things about the Stardust movie if I want to, which I don't. I cannot legally say any rude things about the Robert Zemeckis Beowulf film that I wrote the script for, even if I wanted to. Moving swiftly on. Uh, uh, um, uh, you've been around the block more often than I have. I, I, I've, I've only had the one ad um, adaptation. Because it was the Wachowskis, it was a really positive experience. We uh, met fairly early on in, in, in a hotel in Cork, and um, within about five minutes of meeting them, I just thought, fine. Um, I agree with what you were saying about sometimes adaptations don't work because they are too faithful to the book. Uh, and so I was very encouraged, rather than put off by some of the uh, the changes, they were mooting, and I felt that they were licensed by what was already in the book. Some things which were motifs, like the reincarnational thing, they foregrounded. Other things that were in the foreground simply wasn't time for. But uh, I, I just loved the whole experience, uh, and uh, and I was happy with the film. Uh, they. Uh, I didn't really want any authorial control. Uh, once I'd 
sign the papers, and it should be pointed out that we should state the obvious that no one forces you to do that yeah. down a gun. It, it, it is your choice. You do get to choose. You, you do get to say no. Um, once you've signed it, it's gone, but you don't have to sign. Um, but once I'd done that, um, I just I trusted them to make a far better film than I could have done and written a far better script than I could have written. Uh, and, uh, and they never betrayed that trust once for a second. It was a really positive experience. And, and just the passport it gives you into film world, and just to see all those different tribes that are involved that work together to make a film, there's hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. Uh, for me, the weirdest moment of, of anything in film world was being in Pinewood, walking around the flying pirate ship in Stardust, and them telling me that, oh, you know, 30 carpenters have worked for a month to build this, and we're going to film on it, and next week it's going to be torn down again. And, and I'm going, I, I just wrote that because I needed something between these two scenes, so a flying <laughs> ship. It, it cost me no time and no ink to make a flying ship. I, and then I felt guilty. Um, and then I told uh, one of the carpenters on, Star, on Coraline that I felt about that. And he looked at me, he said, are you mad? He said, if they weren't doing that, they'd be making cupboards. <laughs> he said, you're letting us build pirate ships. You're letting us build these things. And I didn't feel guilty anymore. Did they use Californian redwood to make the pirate ship? <laughs> <laughs> sort of, it would have been sort of a part of yourself. That, 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 it, was, that. it was in Pinewood. They used pine. It's a contract. <laughs> Now, I'm afraid um, we're coming to the end of our time. Um, what you have been privileged to witness this evening, I'm sure, is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> we walk off mistily like Casablanca. That's right. Um, I um, want to thank you all for coming. I want to thank the Union Chapel, of course, for hosting this wonderful evening. Um, I am enjoying to tell you that the bar is open, and also that there are pre-signed books for sale at the back. We sat back there and signed everyone by hand. I watched them. I doing signed it. mine. He signed his. We did it the right way. Good signatures. So, please, can we have another big round of applause? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.